Let's foray into Nevada's wild spaces. This is a half an hour adventure with the Nevada Department of Wildlife. This is Nevada Wild. Here on this Welcome to Nevada Wild, brought to you by the Nevada Department of Wildlife. I'm Ashley Sanchez, joined by co-host Aaron Keller. We also have our Western Regions Fisheries biologist, Travis Hawks. I feel like I said that weird, but thank you for coming in and welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me. And then we have Chris Crookshakes. He is located here in our headquarters building, and he's also fisheries. What's your Welcome official Chris. title? Yeah, what is for your, I forgot to look that up before. I'm Native Aquatic Specialist. Native Aquatic Specialist. And you guys have been busy. This time of year, you're always busy doing your electroshocking surveys on the Truckee River. And I know we do this around the state. So we thought it'd be a good time to have you guys in and talk about our electroshocking projects. So, do one of you, for people who are listening and they're like, what? What is electroshocking? Does one of you want to explain exactly what it is and the different types and the different projects you guys have? Sure. Uh, in in the fisheries world, in, in wildlife management, we uh, electricity is a tool that we use to basically capture fish. Um, it's been used since probably the 1940s or so. Um, what we do is send an electrical current uh, in the water um, at the proper settings, and it will uh, temporarily incapacitate fish, um, and those fish will rise to the surface, and uh, we then have netters that'll, that'll net the fish. And we use electroshocking in a number of different ways. We use backpack electroshockers for a lot of our uh, small streams, which is just a unit that, like it suggests, goes on your back mm-hmm. uh, with a probe. Um, we use what we call a tote barge, which we'll talk a little bit about here in just a little bit, uh, which is a electrical unit that sits in a small john boat um, that we can push and pull up a river with, with uh, two probes uh, coming out of it, um, which are basically long sticks with the electrodes at the bottom of them. And we also use uh, shocking barges, which is uh, a boat-mounted electroshocker that we use for lakes and reservoirs uh, to capture fish in, in larger bodies of water. So when and where, or how do you decide where to do these projects? Is it, do you just do them all over different bodies of we, water? We use uh, electroshocking as a tool statewide in wherever it, it's feasible. Um, you know, in small streams, a lot of the small streams that we have in Nevada are really conducive for a backpack electroshocker. It's a, a safe, very effective way to sample fish. Um, you know, the, there's other methods we can use, netting, you know, sains and hoop nets and whatnot, but um, electroshocking is is really, really efficient. And uh, we use it, like I said, in in small streams. We use our our river-based units for rivers like the Truckee and the Walker River. And our our barges we use on most of our lakes and reservoirs. Um, They are limited somewhat. They don't don't shock really deep. So, you know, in our our shocking barges, in our lakes and reservoirs, it'll 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 send an electrical an effective electrical current that stuns the fish, you know, probably um, maybe 20, 30 feet around the front of the boat. Mm-hmm. And the way these electroshockers work in in all cases, whether it's a tote barge, a backpacker, or a reservoir barge, um, you have generally you know one or two probes that act as the anode, and um, 
you know, the hole of the boat in the tote barge and the reservoir barge will act as the cathode versus the backpack. You have a, a wire that sort of runs behind you um, that acts as a cathode to, to complete that circuit, that ele electrical circuit. I don't want to get it too technical into <laughs> yeah, that's oh, you get electrical engineering. <laughs> I, I, I always thought of it as like the, the red and the black on a battery, right? Absolutely. So that's, that's a, that's a really way easy way. And you got to have both. And if you don't have both, one's not on and the other one's not in the water. And both have to be in the water right. with the power on to complete that circuit and send the electrical right. current through the water. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think um, a really easy way to explain the whole concept, you know, people ask me all the time, how come you guys are electrocuting the fish, right? <laughs> so um, the underwater world is kind of foreign to us. We can't, a lot of times you can't see what's going on. Um, things like deer, elk, terrestrial animals, we can fly around in a helicopter, count them. You can drive up a road. The biologist can use spotting scope binocular. You can see them. You can get an idea of what's going on on the landscape. Underwater is a bit different, so we have to have a way to where we can basically see or get a snapshot of what's taking place in that system. And electri electricity gives us that snapshot, right? We can cover a section of a river, a lake, a creek, whatever, and electrocute those fish. Um, it gives us a chance to capture them, take health indices, you know, length, weight, that kind of stuff, and then release them unharmed and we know what's going on. So that's really the easiest way to explain why and how we like That is a good way to explain it. And like you said, they're released unharmed. And that's yeah. a good point to make. A lot of, a lot <laughs> a of people lot of have a misconception that we're killing fish. We're elec electrocuting them and killing them, but it just, just stuns them temporarily. Our netters will grab the fish and we'll hold them temporarily in a five-gallon bucket or a live well in the boat until we're done shocking and then we'll process those fish. We'll weigh them and measure them and whatnot. Yeah, and it's it's something that, you know, it's not, not to make it overly complicated, but not anyone can just go out and electrocute a fish and not harm it, right? Yeah. We've we've all been through the proper training. We understand our equipment. We know what we're doing to, so so we don't harm the fish during these projects. Yeah, that so that does bring up a good point. Is you got, you, both of you have been electrocuting fish your entire career. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you guys have been yeah. doing this since you guys got out of college. And they're experts. And most this. times before <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah, and in college for yeah. both of you. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, you guys got it fine tuned. You're all the way dialed into what you need to be doing to make sure that, because it's based off of the mass of the fish, right? Isn't that Cor effects? Correct. Yeah. And, and species and, and I mean, everything else, makeup, scale size, everything. Every fish handles electricity differently. And right. depending on where we're working, we know, like, okay, we're handling rainbow trout in this system water temps this you know um, set put the settings here and we're not going to harm fish and you know because that's always number one is we don't want to hurt the fish and then a close second is not harming any people as well shocked enough you've been shocked yeah. by it. <laughs> and just you like anything it. else in the world technology you know whether it be you know phones or cars or whatever technology has come leaps and bounds over the years so it's it's the the whole technique is is really fine-tuned now back in the old days in the 50s and 60s um, people with the Department of Wildlife used backpack electroshockers that were basically a, a gas powered generator on your back that That's created crazy. an electrical current that would have been entertaining yeah I wonder see. if we could find some throwback <laughs> photos of, of some of those old <coughs> equipment I'm we, sure they're I out there I've still got one in my warehouse I remember drawing the short straw and having to carry some of those heavy shockers <laughs> and those are probably nothing <laughs> compared to yeah. Those whole generator ones. Yeah, they've come a long ways. They're they weigh about an eighth of what the old ones used to weigh. So. And so. then, 
Oh, were you gonna keep talking? Nope. Did I just no, no, I was gonna oh, ask a question I about. Heard so someone so say we something. talked a little bit about the backpack sharkers and then the barge, right? Or what's what's the other one you named? Tote. The the tote barge, which is the the unit that we use for our our river shock. That's the smaller so boat, flat bottom boat, basically. Correct. Right? That we do, that ones are kind of used for river surveys, and we push it upstream, you know, as we're doing the survey. And on that note, we're actually. We've been trying for about 10 years to get a new system for shocking rivers. It's actually a, a raft mounted, mounted electro fisher and finally got approval for it. So I'm in the process right now of designing and building a new, it's basically a cataract. So two pontoons that will have a frame and an electro fisher mounted to it. And we'll be able to basically electro fish entire river systems now instead of just sections where we can get that flat bottom barge into. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, because it was kind of a chore to get that thing up and down the banks and the generator in and out and yeah it's it's it takes a while and it takes a whole group of employees and volunteers when we do those projects right. to to carry all that stuff up and down the river banks and yeah so this this should make it easier and it'll you know as far as data and fisheries management it'll increase our data set and give us a better idea of what's happening that's cool and probably the biggest difference between our current tote barge river shocking unit and the cataract is uh one will be used shocking upstream and the other one downstream correct yep exactly nice. oh yeah because i guess you'd push up the tote barge right? you, you push the tote barge up the river versus the cataract just floats down the river so the cataract does it have some built-in cathode then into the frame or something or yeah what? exactly the frame will have the cathode portion and well it'll, i mean it'll have the the anodes and the cathodes the right. anodes will be mounted coming off the front and then the frame will have either wires or something that stretch down into the water that'll be the cathode and it'll yeah. send a electrical current in kind of a yeah we might have to get a couple pictures of it so we can mm -hmm. post it with the podcast so everybody kind of knows mm -hmm. what we're talking about yeah. and people may have seen um if you're downtown while these guys are doing the river electroshocking the river it kind of draws a crowd sometimes because it's it, like you said it takes a whole group of people pushing <laughs> this barge through the river yeah it, so when we're in those kind of heavily populated areas it draws a huge crowd and we actually did a we were lucky enough last week we had the american fisheries society in town and we're able to do a demonstration for i think we had 64 volunteers out there that were all professional fisheries biologists from all over the world we had some people wow. from cambodia and yeah we had a huge crowd and you know it's it's loud and it's it it makes a scene and so people want to see what's going on and so some of the biggest fish that we pull out of the river on that shocking right? yeah exactly they're they're uh you see basically what the river has to offer. So we get, you know, you see all the juvenile fish that were born the year before. And so you have an idea of what's coming up in the system and how healthy it is. But then you also see what we call, you know, the top end of the system or the most mature fish. So um, the ones that the anglers and people, you know, get really excited when they see a 25 inch brown trout. And so that's for know. sure. Every year we post that big, you know, that, that, picture of all the biologists with the big fish and everybody's like where is that at yeah. like, well it's closer it's, than you think yeah, yeah. in your backyard <laughs> basically yeah and um, as an angler you can it can be pretty humbling because you could you could fish this certain section of river uh for days and not catch the thing then you run the electroshocker through there and like, we've had guys giant do that. Fish. <laughs> yeah we we've had volunteers that have come back and tried to catch those same fish and they can't do it yeah. and we've had instances in the past i remember uh one time on the walker uh doing a survey there and we had some volunteers and guys were out there the day before 
fishing and we get up the next day to go shocking and they said well you don't need to shock this section of river we fished it all day yesterday there's not a fish in there mm-hmm. and you run the shocker through there and there's dozens of giant <laughs> pulling a whole bunch of fish out of those cut it's banks easier to say there's no fish there absolutely <laughs> yeah thing. make them feel um, good i we have a few minutes well Eh, not that much time before break, but I did want to ask really quick. You piqued my interest when you said you had fisheries biologists from different states and Cambodia. Is this something different states do? Yeah. Um, Electrofishing is a pretty standard practice for fisheries management in, I mean, in the world, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, different states do similar techniques, different techniques. There's there's all kinds of stuff done, and, and you know, like we touched on, it's all species and water dependent, so... Um, the reason we had so many people here checking out what we're doing is just because it's, it's a little bit different than what they might do in another state or another country. And, you know, getting an understanding of how we're doing it might help them in, in some yeah. of their stuff. And then it gives us the opportunity, too, to talk and network and understand, you know, they, they may have some tips for us. So Very cool. And there's well, so many different factors that are dependent on how effective and what settings you need to use on your shocker. Um, you know, conductivity and TDS and pH and all that stuff, which, you know, water is different yep. everywhere. Yep. Exactly. Well, we could get into this a lot more after the break, but we are out of time for the first half of the show. You're listening to Nevada Wild. If you enjoy listening to our podcast, leave us a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information on hunting, fishing, boating, and all things wildlife, go to endow.org. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Nevada Wild. Before the break, we were talking about electroshocking, which we do on bodies of water around the state. And we've been talking about, we keep saying it's important, but what exactly do you guys get out of these electroshocking projects? So, um, I mean, I guess number one is just densities of fish in certain areas, right? So whether it's a river, a stream, a lake, um, when we're electrofishing, you're, you're keeping track of a couple of things. Where, where you're shocking, so if we have like a, a handheld GPS, we're able to map the area we're shocking, or the other thing we keep track of is seconds. So while the shocker's running, there's a there's a timer on it, and it tells you exactly how many seconds you've been shocking. And what that does is, um, when we're all done, we're able to figure out what's called catch per unit effort in fisheries management, and it tells us, you know, how many fish are we capturing per minute, per second, whatever. Um, and you can compare that data year to year, right? So we get an idea of if fish numbers have increased in this area, if they've decreased. So that's really the main one is is population densities and what's around. Um, it also helps us to identify species in a system, whether they're native species like Wahatan cutthroat trout or whether they're invasive species, carp, things that we don't want in the system. Um, a lot of times when you're electrofishing, you find things that you had no idea existed. I've recently <laughs> found goldfish in Little Washoe Lake, which was new to us <laughs> and, and a bit of an issue. But... Um, so that's another one that you get. And then the final one is it, it just gives us fish health indices, right? We get length, weight, things like that, and we can calculate the condition of the fish. Um, maybe we're maybe it's a, it's a fishery that we stock. Maybe the fish are all skinny and have big heads. That tells us that we might be stocking too heavily. There's not enough food in the system for what we're putting in. Maybe next year we should back off a little bit. Or on the opposite, all the fish are super healthy and fat. 
um, things look good. We don't need to adjust anything and we can just kind of continue on monitoring. So um, those are really the main things that we get out of electro fishing. And in some of our bigger reservoirs, you know, namely some of them up in Elko County, like Wild Horse, you know, um, our species composition in that reservoir has changed over time. Uh, when, with the introduction of yellow perch, the perch sort of took over. Um, then we introduced wipers in an effort to try and control the perch. Um, so over time, we can use the electroshocking barge to look at those those species compositions or ratios. How many um, wipers versus perch are there or, or catfish or largemouth bass or rainbow trout in the system to look at those percentages of each species in the system. And what we saw at Wild Horse over time was it was it was the system was dominated by yellow perch. We put in wipers um, and that dominance um, reversed itself over time, which means the wipers were, were actively eating the perch and controlling that population, which is what they were put there for. So looking at those compositions is really important in a, in a reservoir system. So it really is critical to have electroshocking or something like this because like you said earlier how else would you be able to get this information absolutely it gives us gives us a look into each body of water that we can't just walk up to and look into it's interesting here you guys talk about it too like you just don't realize everything that goes into stocking our waters and managing our fisheries there's a lot to it so it's just interesting to hear you talk about it yeah it's yeah we're you know, a lot of people see we stock things <laughs> and they think it's just a matter of, hey, we need 3,000 exactly. fish. It's every, everything we stock is, you know, it's, it's very well, or I, I like to think well thought out. So. Yes. Everyone's an expert this day and age. <laughs> so, yeah. but this goes to show how much work really goes into all those decisions you guys make. Yeah. And we electrofish <clears throat> around the state, right? Everywhere. I mean, everywhere. Yeah. Streams and, and creeks you know, from Northern Elko County down to Southern Clark County, um, lakes and reservoirs. I mean, Lake Mead. Yeah. Throughout the, the entire state. In fact, we just a couple of years ago, uh, took some electroshockers up on Mount Charleston and found a, uh, self-reproducing population of Lahontan cutthroat trout on wow. Mount, Mount Charleston down by Vegas that, uh, uh, we sort of knew existed, but didn't know to what extent. So we went in there with some shockers and took a look at it and it's doing really well. Very cool. That's awesome. How have you been able to use this um, for, while we're on the topic, Lahontan cutthroat trout recovery? Um, yeah. They're so pointing at each other. <laughs> yeah, well, People we, can't see this. Well, we, had, we did a podcast <laughs> on it where we talked about LCT. And, yeah, and that was a while ago. Yeah, that was a while ago. But one thing we did want to touch on this is, is with cutthroat trout is probably our most heavily used electrofishing. I mean, that's what we shock the most is sh our stream survey crews. And so how do we use those guys and leverage those guys all summer? Yeah. Um, I mean, the honk cutthroat trout, the threatened species, state fish in Nevada, it's, it's a pretty important and cool fish. And so we've got a couple crews that work, um, one crew's out of the eastern region in Elko, and then the other crew works out of Winnemucca. And basically for three to six months every year, their job is on foot hitting those remote streams that are, you know, in northern Nevada that most people just drive by and don't think there's water in. Um, they spend week in and week out hiking those drainages using a backpack electro fisher and um, shocking certain sections of those streams to get an idea of how well the those native fish are still doing you know and these are in most cases these are long cutthroat trout that have been on the landscape since before we were here and um, they're the ones that have never been stocked they're not they weren't raised in a hatchery and and really they're the what I think is some of the most important 
cutthroat trout we've got in the state um and no one no one knows most of them exist but we've got these crews out there that are that are shocking them year in and year out just to understand how those populations are doing if they're declining increasing that kind of stuff so yeah were you were you on stream survey yeah absolutely yeah. so travis i and chris were all on stream survey to get or at different times well yeah. travis and i were together but you basically it's like it's one of the best jobs in the department of wildlife it yeah. sounds I think. very cool like you go out and hike to you, these different you basically get paid water. to camp but then you're yeah. also doing a whole bunch of awesome work very that needs work. to be done all yeah. summer and it can also be used as a tool you know as travis was talking in lahant and cutthroat trout recovery you know a lot of these systems that have non-native trout species rainbows brooks and browns um we'll go into those systems um, eradicate those non-native trout species then come back in and and put lahant and cutthroat trout back in there so when we eradicate a stream system get rid of all the fish uh, we'll spend a couple of years after that project and go back in with an electroshocker um, to shock the water to Just see if sure our to see there. if our project was successful right. um, so we'll do that after each one of these projects to make sure that it was that it was a success and there's no longer any other fish before we can then reintroduce lot and cutthroats nice. yeah so what are some of the other projects you guys have had recently when it comes to you had mentioned Truckee river and do we have any others coming up that have happened? yeah we've got um the east walker river is an annual one and that one is typically it's always after the Truckee river and usually it's l mid to late november um, so that one's coming up this year i've personally got sparks marina coming up tomorrow um, oh. and that one will be in a boat um, we for the most part we hit the majority of our waters every <coughs> couple of years so um, things are always on the schedule um, I, I spent last week actually working with the Forest Service in the Tahoe Basin in Wilderness doing some surveys on some Lahontan cutthroat trout populations up there so um, you're downplaying that that last week's work a little yeah. bit <laughs> you actually got the backpack <laughs> yeah yeah it was a week of backpacking with the Forest Service um, it was pretty labor intensive, but it was cool to see. I mean, a lot of people don't even realize there is self-sustaining populations of cutthroat in the Tahoe Basin, and we were, you know, we were surveying them all week, so getting to see some country that I'd never seen before and some fish I'd never handled, and it was it was really cool. And you know, safe to say that those fish are holding their own right now. So very good. And then we do allow volunteers to come out and help on some of these projects like the one that's coming up on the east walker the, the truck river we just i mean you can anybody that's listening can sign up to be a volunteer with the department of wildlife and come out and help with these projects or you guys have projects going on year-round that you guys need some some help with that we can schedule some people into absolutely yeah i mean a lot of the bigger projects most of our stream projects will have dedicated crews right and they're in um extremely remote locations but a lot of our bigger projects you know, the Truckee River, the Walker River, and, and some of our reservoir electroshocking. We're always looking for volunteers, so urge people to, you know, go to our website and, and sign up. Yeah, you just go to endow.org, and then you go to our volunteers opportunity page. And it really is, my one of my favorite days at work was going out and electroshocking. <laughs> so it really is a great way to volunteer and give back. And yeah, have a lot it's pretty of fun. cool. And the Truckee River one actually had a lot of volunteers show up to that. Yeah, it's, it's for me, it's probably my biggest volunteer coordination effort every year. And, yeah, we get a bunch of people out to help. And, I mean, it's it's vital having them because we don't have enough manpower and nets to capture every fish that turns up. Um, but when we get volunteers out there, they 
everyone knows what a fish looks like and when it's mm-hmm. flopping around in front of them they know what to do so right yeah don't have to really <laughs> tell them <Yeah. laughs> um and then so this it sounds like this is constantly going on year-round different projects like absolutely we're not going on a pure southern region we'll be doing some sort of electroshocking generally year-round but a lot of our um you know the timing of some of our projects most of our our stream electroshocking takes place uh mid to late summer after uh number one you know springtime runoff flows have subsided and also you know we we try not to to shock those stream resident populations you know during their spawning period to you know just so we don't bother them when they're when they're trying to reproduce um reservoir shocking can take place just about any time yeah makes sense Makes sense to me, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were gonna say no. something more. So no, I was wrong. just thinking scheduling. There's, I mean, Nevada's so different that anytime you just go to another corner of the state, and it'll be a different climate. Yeah, a lot of these streams and rivers, I- if you try to electroshock and electroshock them during high flow periods, it's it's pretty impossible. Yeah, pretty much impossible. Yeah. So yeah. anything else you guys want to add? We're well, I think we're for we're, I mean we're pretty much out of time. But pay attention to our our social media stuff. We've been posting some really cool videos. You guys have been making some really cool videos and posts about all this type of stuff the last few weeks. So mm-hmm. and I think some more videos are in. Yeah, the uh, we right had now, some staff so. come out and do uh, take some video of of Travis out on the river, and they're gonna make a little short video of that. So it'd be cool. Definitely check out Facebook and Instagram and. Thank you guys both for coming in. Yeah, thanks for having us. We appreciate it. And thank you everyone for listening. That does it for this week's Nevada Wild. Join us again next week for our next adventure, Nevada Wild. It's a production of the Nevada Department of Wildlife.